0: Quarterly
1: Report. This is your host, Lee. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am your host, Armand Lee, and thank you so much for once again joining me for this brand new episode of the Quarterly Report. Another fun show this week, man. We're going to Wakanda as my homeboy Mark Moore joins me to break down Black Panther and. We're going to rank our top five Marvel comic movies, okay? So you guys let me know last week that you wanted me to discuss Black Panther. There will be spoilers, so this will be in the third quarter. So just heads up. I don't want to hear y'all talking about I ruined the movie. It's been two weeks, Joe. I mean, I can't wait no much. I can't wait longer, all right? So third quarter, there will be Black Panther spoilers, but it's going to be a fun discussion with my homeboy, Mark Moore. Also, Deontay Wilder is preparing for the biggest fight of his career, So I'm going to defend him, kind of. All that and so much more. But first, our number one topic is the first quarter. It's been a real rough week for Mark Cuban and the Dallas Mavericks. We're going to touch on the, the serious issue that the Mavericks had to deal with this past week in the fourth quarter. But they had problems on two ends. One, with their environment, their workplace culture, but also with tanking. Mark Cuban was fine. I believe, six hundred thousand dollars for going on Dr. J's podcast. Side note, man, everybody really does have a podcast. Man, like Dr. J has a podcast. I, God, I man, salute to Aaron, all y'all who listen to my show week in and week out. I really appreciate it because, man, look, if I wasn't myself and I'm looking for a podcast and I see Dr. J and I see somebody Armand Lee who wasn't myself, I don't know if I choose, if I choose my choose me. You know what I'm saying? So I appreciate you guys because, you know, there's a little funny saying when it comes to podcasts that everybody has one. Well, indeed, yes, everybody does have one. But back to the point, Mark Cuban was on Dr. J's podcast and he says that, yeah, man, they were tanking last season and he's talked to some of his players and they're tanking this year and he promised his fans and the organization that they will not tank next year. And it kind of, I mean, the whole, that in and of itself kind of brought the whole idea of tanking back to the forefront of discussion. It started off the season a a great deal because of Philadelphia's success. And, you know, I talked about the Sixers, one of the earlier episodes um, that we did here. I was talking about how, you know, tanking was was an issue but they didn't really fix their problem their problem was the fact that they couldn't draft right so they had a plan but they didn't really address the core problem it's like when when you're sick you can get medicine but if you don't know what got you sick in the first place you could potentially do more harm than good and philadelphia obviously has gotten it right this year it's all kind of come full circle for them but when you look at the team's who are bad, consistently bad. And as a Knicks fan, trust me, I know this firsthand. They stay bad, right? And that kind of gets me to my my conclusion that tanking really doesn't work. Yeah, you can come up with a few examples here and there, but all in all, th- when you think about it, tanking, losing, right? And it's one of the reasons why I talked about having, uh, for the All-Star break, and this is one of them, I think it was like my second show, maybe my third, having like a tournament for the number one overall pick. So you're not rewarding losing because, you know, and Dan Levitard says this often, he says like competitive people will find the ways to be good at losing, right? And that's all that happens because if you incentivize losing, competitive people will try to f- come up with ways to best lose. And now you're bre- breeding a losing culture. So again, yeah, you know, like I said, it's one of the reasons why I decided or I think that the NBA should very well do a kind of a playoff style tournament during the All-Star break, shorten in the season and have the winner of the tournament uh, of teams who don't make the playoffs uh, or the bottom teams in the league, if you will. Fight for the chance to have the number one overall pick because you'd be breeding a winning culture. Because think about it: if you're the Suns, you've been losing and you've been having top picks since Steve Nash left, right? And it hasn't turned out, and you've drafted Devin, uh, Devin Booker. it's one of the best young players in the league. But it hasn't worked. Like I said, I'm a Knicks fan. We've been, with the exception of 2012, and I can't believe 2012 was like six years ago. Oh, my God, it's so bad. The Knicks have been bad with the exception of one year since, like, 2000. 2001, it's 2018. We had one really good year since then. The Kings, if you were to just like kind of pick up and move the block of time that Chris Webber and Vlade Divac was playing in Sacramento, their whole existence has been bad. They've always been bad. And they've had top picks year in, year out. Bad teams stay bad. Orlando look at all the, the the high lottery picks that Orlando has over the years since the white left. you know so the, just getting a top pick doesn't matter. it doesn't it doesn't change anything. The Minnesota Timberwolves and right now they are anywhere between four and five in the playoffs in the Western Conference at the time of this recording. They have Carl Anthony Towns and they have Andrew Wiggins. Two number one overall picks. But they didn't start winning until they traded for Jimmy Butler. Okay? So you can have number one overall picks. Cleveland, before LeBron got there. Kyrie. Kyrie, who's a star, right? Kyrie Irving. Anthony Bennett. They had all of them. But it didn't matter until they got LeBron. Tristan Thompson was a top three pick. You know what I'm saying? So you can have picks, but it does it takes more than that. Now I'll give you a perfect example. Like we said, Philadelphia has seemingly figured it out. They've got two, I mean, sensational, potentially game changers. Really three when you think about Dario Saric as well. But Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are on a different plane than even Dario. And we don't even know about Markel Fultz. The jury is still out with him. But so the process, right? The quote unquote process worked. This team is a really good team. They're fun. They're young and their cap situation is in good hands. Well, maybe not. I shouldn't say in good hands, but Sam Hankey did really well cleaning their cap, clearing their cap, getting picks, stockpiling draft picks, um, and acquiring assets. And now Jerry Colangelo is running the ship at Philadelphia and they're on a very good course. However, In the same time it took Philadelphia to kind of bottom out and then get to this point, the Toronto Raptors missed the playoffs and then they turned their entire organization around and they've also cleared their cap and positioned themselves well with their cap, but also they've made it to the conference championships. This will be the first year and God knows how long Philadelphia has made the playoffs, right? Toronto makes the playoffs every year and they've been to the conference championship. But we don't we don't talk about that. They didn't go about tanking. You know what I mean? They changed their fortunes around. Now, you guys know how I feel about Masai Ujiri. I think he's one of the two or three best general managers in the game. Without question. And what he did in Denver before and now what he's done in Toronto is huge. He traded for Kyle Lowry. And at that moment, everything changed. Right? He traded for Kyle Lowry. He was somehow... Well, I shouldn't say somehow. The Knicks were dumb enough to trade for Andrea Bargnani. He then traded Rudy Gay. And before you know it, he's got two. He's got an all-star backcourt. He's got Valanchunas as a center. He traded for Serge Ibaka. And they have one of the best benches in the league. And they didn't have to tank. You know, the Boston Celtics. The Celtics, people forget before they turned into this juggernaut, they missed the playoffs when they blew up you know, the the old big three when they traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn and then it was just Rondo and then Rondo was a malcontent. They went through a few years without going to the playoffs. But in a shorter amount of time than it took Philadelphia to complete their process, Boston turned their fortunes around. Boston cleared their cap situation. And Boston also has made it to a conference championship. So the idea that the only way to go from a bad team to a contender is to tank. It's just not true. It's not. Bad teams stay bad in the NBA because, and I genuinely feel this, the people who are in power, the people who are in positions of power, of running NBA organizations, don't know what they're doing. And they stay there far too long. You know, Danny Ainge, Messiah Ujiri, these are guys who are forward thinkers, they do things a little bit differently, but they've had great success. You know, now everybody's not going to be like Cleveland, right? And if you get LeBron, then boom, that's the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Cleveland was able to bounce back without tanking, but that's because they got LeBron. But sometimes tanking does work. A uh, perfect example would be the then Seattle Supersonics, Oklahoma City uh, Thunder, right? They traded Ray Allen to Boston. They tried to clear things away so they could move to Oklahoma City. But before they moved, they drafted Kevin Durant. <laughs> you know? And then they got Russell Westbrook and then they got James Harden. I don't, I mean, and they, and they did all, all of that, right? Without having a number one pick and without tanking. When they had Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant's rookie year, he wasn't a good player. So they weren't tanking. They were just playing they're a young, talented guy who, you know, had to develop an NBA body and had to get accustomed to the game. So after playing Kevin Durant, they draft Russell Westbrook, <laughs> you know, and they didn't tank with Durant and Westbrook. They just had two young players. So after that, they got James Harden. And then you start to see, oh, you know, once those young guys started to develop and get accustomed to the NBA game, well, you had an NBA Finals team in a short span of time. But we all know how that ended. I can't wait for that 30 for 30, by the way. But that you have to literally, if you want to go the Oklahoma City route, you have to hit, get lightning in the bottle back to back to back years. Think about this. Kevin Durant, MVP. Russell Westbrook, reigning MVP. And James Harden probably will be the MVP this year. They had all three of them. They drafted all three of them in the span of, what, four years? Three, four years? If you think you're going to go Durant, Westbrook, Harden, back to back to back, good luck. You know, the only time I can think of, that there are two times when I think a team actively tried to tank and it worked. Uh, 2006, 2007, the Boston Celtics. Uh, this was before KG. This is before Ray Allen. They were tanking because they wanted either Greg Oden or Kevin Durant. This was the year where those guys were one and two. Everybody knew it. Um, Ohio State and Texas, everybody was paying attention to those two guys playing in college basketball because it was clear that those two guys were stars in the making. And Boston was trying to tank to get one of those top two picks. And despite the fact that they had an awful year, despite the fact that they had one of the worst records in in the league, they ended up picking like fourth. But that pick, they were able to trade to Seattle for Ray Allen. And they wanted to trade for Kevin Garnett, but Kevin Garnett initially vetoed the trade. He had a no trade clause, so he vetoed the trade to Boston. He only waived it once Boston agreed that they were going to trade for Ray Allen. And once Kevin Garnett knew that Paul Pierce was already in Boston and that Ray Allen was going to go to Boston as well, he agreed to the trade. So in an indirect way, tanking for Boston in the 2006-07 season worked. Not the way they planned, but probably even better, considering that they won a championship and Kevin Garnett being on their team allowed them to trade him to Boston or Brooklyn, excuse me, which has positioned them uh, to the success that they have this season, right? So that worked for them. And it also tanking worked when for the San Antonio Spurs when David Robinson ended up injuring himself. And early on that year in the Spurs fired Bob Hill and they tanked and they ended up getting Tim Duncan right now. They didn't have the best odds to get Duncan. <laughs> they just won the lottery. It was a, I mean, a miracle when you think about how successful that organization has been just off the strength of that one, that one lottery, that one draft. Um, but again, there are not that many Tim Duncan's entering the league. And There are not that many David Robinsons already on a league. You know what I mean? So even when you do tank, you have to have a bunch of things go right that are beyond your control. Boston was able to get Kevin Garnett, but they were only able to get Kevin Garnett because the Seattle Supersonics were trying to go major league and sell off all their assets because they were moving. The Spurs were able to draft Tim Duncan, but... Tim Duncan without David Robinson, who knows how that plays out, right? They were able to pair Tim Duncan with David Robinson, a team that was a perennial 50-win team. Who knows what happens if Tim Duncan goes to Vancouver? He probably doesn't, he's probably not considered the greatest power forward of all time. So again, the idea of tanking, I understand why people are drawn to it. I understand why people think that it's this magical fix-all, right? This thing that cures all the ills in the NBA. But again, before you have another discussion with your buddies or your friend or your girl or your homegirls or whatever the case may be or your coworkers about tanking, ask yourself a question. Look at all the teams who draft perennially atop the NBA draft each year. When was the last time any of them were a contender? Because trust and believe, Golden State, they weren't tanking when they drafted Steph Curry. They weren't tanking when they drafted Klay Thompson. They sure as hell weren't tanking when they drafted Draymond Green, okay? These guys who drafted seven, right? Draymond was in the second round. They weren't tanking. And here they are, one of the greatest teams in the, in the league history. So before you get caught up and start demanding your team tank, just think it through, because it's always not as good as it seems. All right, guys, that was quarter number one. We're going to keep the show moving with our second topic this week. Second quarter. We've got another huge fight weekend on our hands as Deontay Wilder will be battling, finally, Luis Ortiz in a much-anticipated showdown in the heavyweight division this Saturday on Showtime. And, man, y'all know... I cannot wait for this, there are a lot of questions, oh damn it, uh, oh goodness, devil, it's uh, I guess, nice to see you again, is it really Armand, or are you just saying that, uh, nah I'm just saying that, you're a real asshole you know, that really hurts, oh, um, my bad devil, you know what I'm saying, I was just joking man, I'm sorry, <laughs> Got gotcha, you, you little bitch. F- <laughs> you, devil. Anyway, who am I playing devil's advocate for today? This week, you're playing devil's advocate for Deontay Wilder for saying he could knock out Mike Tyson in his prime. Shit, I'm usually pretty good at these. I ain't gonna lie. I don't know about this one, though, bro. Come on. Be a good sport. All right, man. Damn. <sighs> <clears throat> All right. Um... Yo, Deontay, how am I going to do this? All right. I get it. Deontay Wilder is an amazing athlete. He's tall. He's athletic. He's got a crazy long reach, and he's got knockout power. So, you know, theoretically, you know what I'm saying? Wilder could, what they say, is the cliche in boxing, right? You got a puncher's chance. And I understand why Deontay Wilder feels that with his athleticism and with his amazing knockout power, uh, that, yeah, I see how he thinks that he could knock out uh, Mike Tyson in in his prime. Um, yeah. Wait, that's it? That's all you got? Yeah, man. I mean, come on, Joe. While they're beating Tyson in his prime, how crazy does that sound? Alright, I can only defend it but so much. Alright, well it's back to causing terror and chaos. You know what they say about idle hands. Wait, wait, no, 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 Man, I, you know what I'm saying, I do the greater good keep talking to make sure he's not causing terror. Look, man, like I know a lot of y'all love Wilder and I have been critical of, of him in the past and a few of y'all Y'all tweeted me up a storm and sent some emails back when I was critical of Deontay in the past. But, man, like, let's chill, Joe. Like, he feeling himself a lot. Deontay Wilder hasn't fought anybody, anybody of note. And he's out here talking about he knock out Mike Tyson in his prime. Come on, bro. Like, I I feel stupid even trying to come up with any type of way to rationalize or reason with that train of thought. Like, yeah, Joe, like. Who you who have you beat? Who have you beat? Stavine, Molina? Those are the two best fighters in, in my estimation that you, you faced. And both of those dudes, oh man, what pox say, man? Look at fat flat and, and flabby like Larry Holmes. The dudes weren't weren't anywhere near the peak of boxing, let alone physical conditioning. I mean, those guys, come on, man. And I get it, like he's exciting. He's got devastating knockout power. He's athletic. He's tall, man. He's he he hits you in all types of different angles. We've we've rarely we've rarely seen a heavyweight with that type of ability and agility that Wilder has. But what does that mean if you don't ever fight anybody? And I and I know you Wilder fans out there. I can hear y'all now, man. Oh well, Luis Ortiz failed the drug test, and AJ hadn't want to get in the ring with him. Whatever. Saturday, we're going to see, right? Ortiz is ready. We'll see. I think it's going to be, obviously, it's going to end in a knockout, right? (laughs) Neither one of those guys is going the distance. But, you know, a lot of people, I'm not convinced that Wilder's going to run through Ortiz like a lot of people are. Only because we don't know how disciplined Wilder is. And Ortiz is a boxer puncher. I mean, when you see him, you know he's a huge, he's just a big guy, right? So his stamina is is a big issue, but we've seen Wilder have issues with his stamina as well. Right? So it's a matter of if Ortiz can get inside and outbox him. And I have no doubt that Ortiz will be able to outbox him, you know, but back to, you know, Wilder has, you know, he's a victim in terms of his competition. Nah, no, he's not. Deontay Wilder could have fought Vladimir Klitschko for years. I will repeat that. Before Vlad lost, To Joshua and before he lost to Tyson Fury Vlad could Vlad was willing and able to fight Deontay Wilder and Wilder wanted no smoke let's not act like that's not the case okay Deontay Wilder talks all this stuff the moment Vlad his kind of reign of the heavyweight division went down that's not a coincidence Deontay Wilder wanted to go rumble with Vladimir Klitschko it would have been done Vlad didn't duck anybody Vlad fought everybody Everybody. Okay. So let's stop with that. Number two, Chris. Um, I'm sorry. David Hayes. We've seen, we, we've we heard the, the, you know, urban legends of their sparring sessions. How come Wilder doesn't want to fight Hayes? You want to know why? Because Hayes probably would have gave him that work. I mean, look, think about Deontay Wilder is fighting Chris Ariola in like 2015, 2016. Like Ariola, Ariola was making waves back in like two thousand and three, two thousand and four, and he was never the the pinnacle of, you know, physical conditioning, even in his prime. Let alone ten years after his prime. Like why? What you talking about, bro? Like no, why? You haven't done it. Like, yeah, everybody wants to see you fight AJ, bro. And I don't think you want. I don't think you're gonna like what happens. But before Dylan White, Tyson Fury. Before Tyson Fury lost his mind. He could have fought him. There are a lot of heavyweights. There are a lot of heavyweights. Most of them are not from America. They're, you know, they're European. But they're out there. Clearly, Wilder has no problem calling out Europeans. He's calling out AJ. Right? But how come you were quiet, Church Mouse, when it came to Vlad? How come you were quiet, Church Mouth, with David Hayes? How come you were quiet Church Mouth with Tyson Fury? You want to fight Tyson Fury now? Tyson Fury probably will. I don't know if he'll ever fight again, bro. Like, he's got issues. Tell White, you can fight him. You don't want any problem. Hey, Parker, you can fight him. You got all these guys, all these contenders, legitimate heavyweight fighters, better than anyone you have ever faced. And you want to play the victim role that nobody wants to fight you? Man, get out of my face, man. <laughs> I am so excited. And I'm not, I have no... Uh, horse in the race being dead serious but I am so excited to see this fight on Saturday not because I think either of these guys I mean you know what I'm not going to even say that but I don't know how good Deontay Wilder is you know it's like when you watch uh, a kid a high schooler and you see all these like crazy YouTube videos and you're like man look at him but you have no idea how good he is because you don't know You're looking at him playing against regular, normal sized, you know, high school kids. And there's like this one freak athlete who's like bigger, stronger, faster than these little kids, these little dweebs who haven't even hit puberty yet. So you're like, yo, I I have no idea what you're doing is fantastic. But the resistance, I have no idea what, what you know how to measure it. You know, it's like you see somebody on a bench press, but with no weights on the bar. So he could be putting up the the bar as many times as he wants, but this that that doesn't that doesn't impress me. You gotta you gotta put some resistance on that joint. Now, if Wilder comes out and looks and treats Ortiz the way he treated Stavern the last time, all right, then we're like, okay, I got it, I get it now, okay. But everybody hailing how he treated Stavern. A few months ago, man, Stefan hadn't fought in like two years, and it was clear he had no desire to fight anymore. He was cashing a check. That's all that was, man. If he could do that against Ortiz, all right, bet. But thus far, when he's gone up against, I mean, the lowest type of talent, the, I mean, nothing impressive, he struggled to win. I remember the Molina fight, and I'm like, bro, why is this so hard for you? Why, like, why is it taking you so long? And not only is it taking you so long to get him out of there, he got himself in trouble. There were plenty of fights. The Spitzka, I don't know how to pronounce the dude's name, but I know you guys probably remember It's Like, probably, like, two years ago. It's a PBC fight. A uh, guy starts with his ass, Spitzka, something like that. And this dude was giving Wilder problems, like, for real. I'm like, bro, Deontay Wilder has been the same type of fighter for like the last six seven years very raw very talented right obviously has great athleticism and obviously clearly has great punching power but he hasn't improved as a boxer there's no reason why his jabs shouldn't be lights out i mean look how, look how lanky i mean not even lanky look how long his arms are he's got an amazing reach so when you look at somebody like aj who's and it's still in this story. Like Wilder has been the same fighter for so long now. Now that he's in his 30s, it's like, okay, well, this is the fighter that you're going to be. Anthony Joshua's in his early 20s, and he's getting better every time you see him. Bro, I don't think Wilder wants those problems, and he definitely doesn't want those problems if it takes another year or two. And so I understand why he's in a hurry to get this fight. But if I'm AJ, I'm like, look, look, at, who, look at who AJ has fought and beat. His resume is already better than Wilder's. You know, I, I appreciate the bro, man. I, I Hat off to him. I hope he has great success. And like I said, I'm super excited about Saturday. But, yo, you got to chill, Slim. You can knock, beat Mike Tyson in his prime, man. Sit your ass down. And I this ain't even the Angry Man segment. But man, sit your ass down. Oh, man. I can't wait, though. We going to see. We going to 2018, bro. We are going to find out about Deontay Wilder starting, starting Saturday night. And I can't wait. All right, guys, that's the horn. The first half is in the books. Before we get to halftime, I also want to say I will be live tweeting, uh, you know, this fight Saturday night. So if you want to join in, you know, on the festivities with the quarterly report, make sure you follow me on Twitter. I'm at the quarterly show. That's Q U A R T E R L E E show. You can follow along Saturday night. I will be live tweeting the Deontay Wilder Luis Ortiz fight. Man, it's gonna be hope. It's gonna be an exciting fight. One of the bomb is gonna get laid out. We know that's gonna happen for a fact. So it's just a matter of when and which which fighter uh, doesn't doesn't uh, get his arm raised. So I'm super excited about that. But you also can get involved with the show on any night, whether it's Saturday night or tonight uh you can email us i love to hear your thoughts and your ideas uh whether you agree or disagree with me on deontay wilder or on tanking or whatever the case may be email me in the show at quarterly report at gmail.com that's quarterly q u a r t e r l e e report at gmail.com and now you can listen to the show in a variety of ways you can listen on Apple Podcast, all you got to do is search the quarterly report, whether it's in iTunes or your Apple product. Again, that's quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E. You'll see the icon with my face on the coin. Click on that, subscribe. And while you're at it, please rate and review. But if you don't like Apple Podcast, you can listen to us on Spotify, Podknife, Lipson, The Range, Google Play, everything, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Make sure you check us out and tell your friends, family members, whomever, to check out the podcast, man. I think we're doing a pretty good job. Our numbers continue to grow. Thank you very much for tuning in and helping out. But, uh, yeah, man, let's keep it going, man. Let's keep the momentum that we've gotten so far in in 2018 going. All right, guys, back to the show. First half is done, so that means halftime is upon us. And I got to say, This past week, I got the wildest uh, tweet from my homeboy, Ian. Um, Ian's on the show. He's been on the show twice now. And he sends me this link, and I'm sure you guys saw it, of the governor of Illinois at this conference. And he takes part in a demonstration about diversity. And long story short, the demonstration was a glass of milk and someone pouring chocolate syrup in the milk and they spun the spoon and the syrup in the milk glass to demonstrate diversity. And the governor drank the chocolate milk saying, Mmm, diversity tastes good. <laughs> it's so silly, but so are our politics. And it got me thinking, how would this kind of diversity demonstration go in real life as competitive people try to one up their uh, peers in the political uh, space that is our 24 hours news cycle. And I have a
0: feeling it would go something like this. Hello, I'm Wolf Blitzer, and this is The Situation Room. It's the viral competition sweeping the political landscape called the Diversity Challenge. It started when Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner drank a glass of chocolate milk in a show of support of diversity, which sparked a competition of one-upsmanship across the political spectrum. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan first followed by showing him making and eating s'mores in Annapolis. Not to be outdone, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo played the piano before the start of his press conference yesterday, beginning the festivities with the rendition of Ebony and Ivory. But the competition reached new heights, or lows depending on your perspective, as Florida Senator Marco Rubio jumped into the fray. I want to warn you, his quote does use language you may not want children to hear. Senator Rubio said hours ago, quote, diversity is an amazing thing. In fact, I love diversity so much, my favorite filter on Pornhub is interracial. The press conference was abruptly ended that moment and Rubio was last seen running off stage for a glass of water. Joining me now to discuss 12 talking heads who will all ignore one another and try to yell and scream over everyone. This is The Situation Room.
1: This is where we are. This is where we are. I promise you, when I got the, the, this, this tweet from my, my guy Ian, like I said, when I first saw it, I thought it was uh, a, a headline from The Onion. You know what I'm saying, like, and I felt for the governor of Illinois, man, because it wasn't his demonstration. You know what I'm saying, to have the glass of milk and then pour the chocolate syrup and stir it as this big kind of eye-opening uh, demonstration of diversity. He was just there, and the brothers doing it, and the governor's like, man, I know inside his head he's like, man, y'all Bama's are crazy, but what's he gonna do? Just like, man, I ain't drinking that mess, nah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I felt for him, honestly. And, and and side note, that's that probably will be a future halftime segment. You know what I'm saying? Like, auto a real life article or Onion headline, because we're living in a time now where real life is stranger than fiction. You know what I mean? Think about this: we have to have a demonstration for adults to talk about the importance of diversity. Like that thought, you have to laugh to keep from crying. Like. We shouldn't have to use any type of demonstration, let alone something as silly as chocolate. But my daughter is seven years old without actually knowing about diversity. You can go to children and see them participate in play. Man, if you like my little pony, my daughter will call you her best friend instantly. Doesn't matter what you look like. I talked to you guys a few weeks ago about, you know, her uh, sleepover that she wants. I asked her who she wants. There's a, you know, black girls white girls a girl i don't know what she is she even wanted a little white boy to come over and i was like you know i don't know about if their families want you know you know mixed match sleepovers but whatever i'm you know hey i'm all cool i'm for it my daughter at this point you know she just likes certain personalities and that's the crazy thing right you don't have to tell a child about diversity children will just naturally gravitate to people that they like you know they'll just gravitate to fun and if they're working together you know, people, they'll just listen to ideas. You know what I'm saying? Doesn't matter your sex, doesn't matter your race. Age probably factors a little bit, right? Because children probably listen to the people who they feel are older than them. But then you don't have to tell children about diversity. They have to learn about it after seeing <laughs> us, uh, us adults interact, right? So children will grow up in the world not needing to know about diversity, right? We'll just have an understanding. But then through growing and living in our society, will be stripped of this pure idea of diversity. Diversity is such a pure idea. But when you have to talk about it and implement and do silly demonstrations, you start thinking like, my God, how awful must we be that adults have to have some silly ass, you know, chocolate milk demonstration to talk about diversity. Like, that's crazy, bro. Oh, man, we get what we deserve, Joe. Unfortunately, we get what we deserve. These are the people running running our society. Good Lord. Anyway, that's too depressing to continue to too depressing to continue to think about. So we're going to keep the show moving, right? We are one half down, so we got two quarters left. I'm really excited about this next quarter, man. I had stoppage time last week, and a listener asked me about Black Panther, right? I wanted to give people another week just in case they hadn't seen it and I didn't know if you guys wanted to hear it but I got a few more tweets and emails asking to hear my thoughts on Black Panther. So, not only will I give you my thoughts on Black Panther and my favorite Marvel films, I'm also going to bring in uh the biggest comic fan I know. Um he was on the show a few months ago to talk about Thor and the Punisher, so we're going to bring back my guy Mark Moore to discuss Black Panther. It's our third topic this week. He is the show's resident comic book expert and one of my homeboys. Mark Moore is joining me once again this week. Mark, what's going on, bro?
2: What's up, Bailey? How you doing, bro?
1: Man, you know, I'm trying to make it. Matter of fact, I'm trying to make it like Black Panther. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And that's where we're going to start off. Look, you were on the show a few months ago back in November, and I briefly touched on it, but, you know, now that we're here, I think it's... I have to kind of, you know, stand up and take it. Uh years ago, years ago when they first announced that they're making a Black Panther movie, I uh I think you and I even made a wager that a wager that I still have to pay up on. Uh, that I I came out and said that Black Panther, it sounds so stupid now, man, but at the time I said that Black Panther would be one of the um uh least uh profitable films in the marvel franchise right now again i understand how dumb that sounds now but at least let me explain i was coming at it from the position that you know the the typical marvel fan who goes to these movies many of them would be kind of uh off put at a movie called black panther you know y'all know what i'm talking about man middle america you understand i don't know how comfortable they were going to be going to see a movie called Black Panther, especially considering the times that we live in now. Um, clearly, I couldn't have been more wrong. But as someone who who predicted that Black Panther would be successful, I'm curious, did you even imagine, could you have imagined the movie being as successful as it is now?
2: Um, I'm going to start off by saying, I know you just conceded that point, but I'm going to start off by saying I was right about this. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels good to act, to say I was right. I um, think, okay. but yes, like even though I knew it was still like do numbers, I didn't know it could almost potentially reach a billion. Yeah, I didn't realize it was going to be top four, top three of Marvel movies altogether. I thought it would be a good top five. I thought Spider Man would do better than it, than it did. Um, right. Because you know Spider Man is just, uh, uh, you know everybody's friendly neighborhood Spider Man. Um, Everybody knows Spider Man. <laughs> exactly, and, and no, Black Panther is not as is definitely not as popular as Spider Man. But um, I think people just try to ha- probably had Spider Man fatigue when it comes to him. But no, I didn't think it was going to do the numbers that it did. I did uh one of the things I pointed out back then was that I think think it was gonna do numbers because it still had the Marvel machine back in it and the way that the Civil War uh, uh introduced them would you know um kinda lead into more people wanting to know about this character. And I also think like even uh they're not just black uh uh comic book readers that love black panther it was a, a, like as a whole he is universally liked um so i that's what something else that went into that attitude why i think we thought it was going to do so well but a 700 million worldwide i did not see that coming <laughs> i
1: mean it's crazy man the success is is amazing um and you know it, it's weird because they they may not be getting um all of the, 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 fans that Marvel films usually gets from like, you know, Montana and Iowa, whatever the case, but they're getting so many new fans. It was so funny. I've seen the movie twice now after the first time I saw it and the movies packed, man, like every seat is filled and you know, the song, all the stars are playing Kendrick joint and the credits are coming on and like 80% of the theater gets up and leave. And I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, I know none of y'all bammers have gone to Marvel films before, because at this point you, everybody who's seen a Marvel, at least one knows you got to stay. Not only do they do one in the credit scenes, they're now starting to do two in the credit scenes.
2: But I would, uh, I'm gonna have to look for this, but I would like to actually see a state by state uh, uh, breakdown of how much each state made, just to see how middle America did.
1: Yo, man, hey, I'm with you on that. I imagine, you know how on election night, they show the, uh, the electoral college and it always is like blue on the coast. And everything in the middle outside of, like, Illinois is red. I'm imagining that's what the audience, if they were to do, like, a state-by-state breakdown would look like. I'm with you. That would be fascinating. I would love to see something like that. (laughs) Once again, guys, I'm joined by my homeboy, Mark Moore. Make sure you follow him on Twitter, man. He's an amazing editor, uh, photographer, and really a fun follow online. So make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at MarkingTheEdit. Um, really fun follow. Talks about sports, talks about movies. Again, he's a comic fan. The quarterly report, comic expert, but also touches on a lot of different things. A super fun follow. So make sure you check him out. Um, all right, Mark. So because of Black Panther's success, it got me thinking. Because you know, I'm watching the film and I'm like, man, you know, I really enjoy this movie. This may be one of my favorite superhero films. Um, so it got me thinking. Uh, what are my five favorite, not just superhero films, but to refine the search, uh, Marvel movies. Right. And, um, so with you here, I feel, I figured it'd be fun to kind of both of us give the fans or to give the listeners our top five will go in descending order and alternate. Okay. Um, so starting things off, um, my fifth favorite film, um, and you'll notice this about me, like. I don't like the big kind of apocalyptic fight sequences at the end and, you know, these kind of one dimensional villains. Um, I didn't like Avengers. I didn't like Iron Man. So all my five favorite Marvel films are relatively new, starting with number five, Thor Ragnarok. Uh, I really enjoyed that film. Um, They did have kind of like a huge battle sequence at the end. But to me, the movie was best in the second act where they're uh, on this planet and they've got Jeff Goldblum as like a minor antagonist. And he brought so much fun and color to the film and also the dynamic between Thor and Hulk and Thor and Banner. It's a superhero movie, but it it felt almost like like a a buddy cop movie in many parts. So I enjoyed that movie and uh, that's my fifth favorite Marvel film.
2: Okay. All right. So uh, I've been trying to figure this out myself. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a toss-up between Thor Ragnarok and Iron Man One. Okay, and I have to go with Iron Man One because it all it kicked it all off. Right. So it, it was the it was the film that started this whole Marvel Cinematic Universe off, and I think that has to be taken into account when talking about these films. Without it, it none of this happens, and the way that yeah. they established it and set it up. And with Sam Jackson and the end credit scene it, right. and the way that it just started to come together with this movie. Yeah. I had to go with that as my number as my number five. And I just thought it was like an uh, entertaining, enjoyable film.
1: All right. We're going to keep our list moving. Uh Number four for me and my fourth uh selection. This is when I knew that I was all in on these Marvel films, because like I said, the first Marvel film I saw, in the theater was the Avengers. And like I told you earlier, I didn't enjoy, I didn't like the movie, but here I am in 2017 watching Dr. Strange. And I'm like, yo, I know I'm invested because that movie, I knew nothing about Dr. Strange. I know anything about this joint. And now it's my fourth favorite Marvel film. That movie is trippy as fuck. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? And, and I appreciate it. It like it's ambitious it's different it's not like your typical superhero movie um dr strange can't really fight like that he don't really get down like that and the way they did their villains and antagonists in the movie it's it was layered you know what i'm saying because throughout the entire movie there's this one guy who you, who you are viewing as the main villain and then at the end he's fighting this kind of creature in space right and he's not really fighting him he's just he, he has to use his magic to kind of trick him or make a bargain as he says to to ultimately win and then at the very very end of the movie a guy who wasn't even considered a villain at all starts to grow into this antagonist character which i'm assuming for future films man i really appreciated the movie and visually it just looks so good as an editor i'm sure you can appreciate that dr strange was trippy as all hell man and i really like that movie so to me it's my fourth favorite uh, Marvel film,
2: and honestly, I just rewatched that like last week. And me. one of the things that I appreciate about it is how they're kind of—I think the next phase is setting up villains better. At the end of Civil War, Zemo's still alive, right? Uh, even at the end of Thor: Ragnarok, there uh, the the dude that's the executioner—he was carrying that hammer. He was working with um, Hela throughout the, most of the film. Mm. He is supposed to be like the henchman to this one of Thor's most famous villains called Enchantress. So there's like a little setup for that. And then at the end of Doctor Strange, um, Chua Tell's character Mordo, like he, like that was a great
0: was villain beautiful.
2: origin story. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause you saw just how much, uh, like each of those changes was affecting him. And then by the end of it, he was like, yo, it's too much magic in the world. It's too I'm much, yeah. I'm going to take your ability to walk. Right. <laughs> um, so, now, I'm not mad at that pick at all. Uh, but with my fourth, I'm going to go with Avengers. Okay. On, and that's because we get a great and entertaining look at the culmination of the first phase of Marvel films. Right. Like, you built it to this moment, and... I know you may not agree, but you built into this moment. You got to this moment, and you still knocked it out the park. Right. And then to think that you did this with some, your your like your B and C list superheroes, like yeah. Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man are in the grand scheme of Marvel. Up until like Iron Man One, B list. Their A list yeah. were was X Men, Spider Man, Incredible Hulk, right, and the Fantastic Four. So. Avengers was just like the culmination of it all. So I would go with them with my number four.
1: Look, I understand I'm in the minority. I know all the Marvel fans and comic book fans. They love Iron Man. They love the Avengers. I get it. I, I'm, I'm fine being in the minority. I just know that when I saw the Avengers, right, and I'm in the theater, and everybody gassed it up. Everybody sized it. And this they came out like around the time the Dark Knight was out. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the movie and I'm like, OK, man, yeah, let's see how good this is. And like the last 20 minutes of the film, it's just aliens coming out of the sky. And I'm just like, bro, it, it just was boring to me. You know what I'm saying? I get it. You go to a superhero film. You want to see Thor uses lightning and, uh, you know, Iron Man shoot whatever it is that he shoots out of his hands and Hulk break stuff. I get that. But for me man it just became repetitive and that's one of the reasons why i like these newer movies these newer films and you'll see as my list progresses with the villains and kind of how they do their fighting so um once again guys i'm here with my my homeboy mark moore we're breaking down our top five favorite uh marvel films um so number three for me is uh spider-man homecoming um and again, I, I don't even like Spider Man. I didn't like any of the Tobey Maguire joints. The dude who was uh, from the Social Network when they rebooted it, I didn't even see them joints. I didn't like the cartoon of Spider Man when I was little. I just don't like Spider Man. But they did a really good job with this movie, man. Like in terms of just like keeping it like a high school film. You know what I mean? It was it's like a coming of age movie with a superhero. You know, because the film basically is about. Spider-Man trying to impress Tony Stark because he's trying to get a job with the Avengers. You know what I'm saying? And over the course, you know, he likes a girl. The whole thing, man, it's like a a teenage coming of age movie. Oh, by the way, this is Spider-Man fighting crime. And the best thing about Spider-Man to me was Michael Keaton, man. Up until Black Panther, Michael Keaton's villain or antagonist, whatever you want to call it. He was like the best one. And they did a good job of showing why he was that way. He wasn't like this, this evil doer who wants to to bring down the world. He's a guy, right, who wants to take care of his family, support his family. We all understand about downsizing. You know, he got a, he caught a bad break, and he wanted to stick it to the people who kind of gave it to him. And Michael Keaton was like my favorite part of Spider-Man Homecoming. He was really good. And I enjoyed the film, man. So Spider-Man Homecoming, despite me not liking the character of Spider-Man, was my third favorite Marvel film.
2: I dig that. And I did, like, with Spider-Man Homecoming, I did like Michael Keaton's character. Like, my favorite scene was just that scene in the car where...
1: Yes! Yes, that joke was so hard. He's driving Spider-Man and his daughter to the dance. And as his uh, daughter walks to the, uh, to the school, he keeps Spider-Man in the car... And he's like, "Yo, if you stop me again, I'm gonna kill you and everybody you love." <laughs> How hard is that, Joe? Oh, yeah, Michael Keaton was the G. <laughs> he just
2: went to that dance, shook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was like, "I gotta break your heart, sweetie. I gotta go." <laughs>
0: right.
2: <laughs> but um, my number three pick is Civil War. Mm, okay. And this might be some biasness because they introduced Black Panther. So yes, yeah, right. this is going to be in my top three. And right. Also, we um like it was a a a break from you know your typical protagonist antagonist villain super villain uh, hero villain type of story because yeah they were kind of chasing a common enemy but the like the real antagonist of the story was the different ideologies because neither one of them were kind of right or wrong. Um. I was uh I think I was Team Iron Man by the way. I remember reading the comic and I was definitely Team Cap, but I mean in this film Cap was pretty much just trying to save the spring. Which to his credit is very understandable because you see in the movie that Peggy Carter died and then Bucky was literally his only connection to his previous right. Right. So he was trying to protect that at all costs, even at the expense of the uh one of the people that he has grown to know and love himself, uh, which is Tony, and yeah. we see that conflict to the end. They then just try to wrap it up in a nice little boat. In a, in a in a nice little boat. So I appreciated that about the film, and I also appreciated again with Black Panther how we see him go from vengeful to uh, like contemplative in a way that we see his we see a great character trajectory for black panther and the limited screen time that he had so right. those things like really i really enjoyed about the film and that's why i got it number three
1: once again guys i'm joined by my homeboy mark moore he is an editor photographer uh creator and the quarterly report resident expert when it comes to comic books um we're breaking down our top five favorite marvel films um the list thus far five for me was thor ragnarok four dr strange three spider-man for mark five was um iron man four was the avengers three was captain america's civil war so for number two for me it it is black panther and i know black panther is going to be high for you so i won't do too much talking for it um but the movie i mean there's not going to be another superhero movie talking about colonialism <laughs> you know what i'm saying and like pan-africanism like the the movie touches on so much but if you just want to go see a superhero hero film and see action and uh cgi and all this stuff you could do that you don't have to delve deep into this to, to the some of the, the the cultural messages that the film has but I feel like you'd be cheating yourself if you shut yourself out for that. You know what I mean? Cuz that's part of what makes this movie at least in my opinion so special. And like I said, like the, there's a theme with with my list, the 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 um the the level of great antagonists or villains and you know Killmonger was like the best one. <laughs> like he just was. Uh again, I'm not going to spend too much time cuz I know it's going to come on your list, but you know Black Panther I really enjoyed it uh Killmonger you 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 identified with him you know what I mean even though he did some really reckless and really bad things like you you understood where he was going through and what he wanted and um you know I really enjoyed Black Panther so it's my
2: second favorite Marvel film all right so uh I'm just going to you you'll probably know what my number one film is at bc i already know what (laughs) your top two are i know what your top two (laughs) so my number two is winter soldier and just by default you'll know that my number one is black panther so (laughs) number two was winter soldier because like it it was definitely just a it was just a great film like you get just like you were saying with black panther you can just go if you want to just go see it as a superhero film you could and the same thing with Winter Soldier, if you wanted to go just see this film kind of as a standalone, you would still get it. You might not know who the Winter Soldier, the connection between Cap and uh, uh, the Winter Soldier is, which if you didn't see the the first Captain America film, which could take it away a little bit, but you would still understand and follow the story and know what's going on. Um, Just from start to finish for uh, uh, Cap and again, this is a is a a, a story about ideologies, about um, what what's the cost of freedom, essentially.
0: Um,
2: yeah. Which you know, at this point in history, everybody can connect with that. And yeah. the way they you know went about telling the story and having Kat become the villain about you know fighting for our freedom. It was just, like, very well told for me. And, like, the fighting sequences were bomb. Like, that one, the fighting sequence between Winter Soldier and uh, Cap was, like, some of the best, like, choreographed fighting I've seen in the Marvel, uh, with the Marvel films. So, yeah, Winter Soldier is my number two. I can watch that over and over again.
1: All right, guys, the moment you've been waiting for. I'm here with my guest this week, Mark Moore. We're ranking our top five favorite Marvel films off the uh, the strength of Black Panther success. Uh, five for me was Thor Ragnarok. Four was Dr. Strange. Three, Spider-Man Homecoming. Two, Black Panther. For Mark, five was Iron Man. Four was the Avengers. Three was Captain America Civil War. Two was the Winter Soldier. For So number one for me was Captain America Civil War, man. Um, as I said, when you look at my list, um, three and two are Spider-Man and Black Panther. And I feel one of the reasons why those two movies were so well done is because that you didn't have to do an origin story for them. Like Black Panther just gets right to action. Uh, Spider-Man, you don't have to talk about Uncle Ben's death. It just goes right to it. It just starts, right? Following up the events of Civil War. Civil War was so good that it was like a launching point for Black Panther. So I don't think it's a coincidence that those two films, Black Panther and Homecoming, had the best villains because they didn't have to spend time telling you why black Panther is black Panther, why he's upset, why he's the King now. Right? Because you saw it in civil war. You didn't have to go through like, why, who is Spider-Man? Why is Spider-Man connected with the Avengers? Why does Spider-Man want to impress Tony Stark? Because civil war did all that. You know what I mean? So it gave it the movies time to develop vulture, Michael Keaton's character to develop uh killmonger, Uh, Michael B. Jordan's character and those are the two best villains in the Marvel cinematic universe in my opinion so all that stuff plus it was just a good story it tied up years the first three phases if you will of the Marvel cinematic universe the 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 underlying conflict between Captain America and Tony Stark that was always bubbling under the surface it came to a head and again. No crazy aliens or mutants fighting in the end. Just a really good fight sequence with a, a an amazing fight sequence in the middle of the film. I really enjoyed that movie, and it's my, my favorite, not just Marvel film, it's my favorite superhero film ever.
2: But my number one, again, you already guessed it, I just said it, is Black Panther. <laughs> and just, like, I, I was having a conversation with, with my wife about it, about why I would put it over Winter Soldier. And like the scripts for both of them are like are, are super well done, but the thing that kind of just kind of puts it over the edge for me, and this is a biased thing, but it is black as hell. <laughs> yes, like, it is. It, it, like it, unapologetically it, it, black, unapologetically black, and I that's just when to have to put it as my number one. Like even with the way it starts out, like I. One of the things that I really appreciated about the film was how they did, like, some of the visual effects. Like, the, yeah. the sand navigation system and how they told, like, the origin of the Black Panther through that, that was mounting sand sculptures and everything. Yeah. Um, that was just so visually appealing and original to me. I just loved that about it. Um, and then you go into the movie and you start in Oakland. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about Ryan Coogler is that he will find he he injects himself himself into the film somehow and it's doesn't come off as, you know, uh conceited. Like right. this is where he grew up. This is what the the uh the the nature of where his stories are coming from. Right. So we get into that and then we get into like the character uh uh Sterling Brown's character about the revolution. You got public enemy posters on the wall. You got hip hop music playing. Like, it, it's just, like, that's just how we come into the film. And then right. we go across, then we go uh, across the world and we seeing these plush, vibrant images of these different African cultures. And they present it in such a way that it's, uh uh looked upon with with admiration, and the last film to kind of do that was probably Coming to America, (laughs) and, of course, like, Killmonger is the, is, like, just a great antagonist. When I first saw it, I'll admit that I kind of had a problem with kind of, I I feel like he was too on the nose when I first saw it, because I just had this thing about when it comes to, like, film and television and visual and, and the visual medium is, like, you're supposed to show me, not tell me. Right. And, like, Killmonger was telling you his problem the whole film, but, you know, after I saw it the second time, I was like, you know what? Nah, this works.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and, like, you you, like you say, you connect with him, and you understand the hurt that he's going through. And
0: right. then,
2: I also love, like, the growth of T'Challa going from it's trying to figure out how to be a king and how his country should run, and then he does something that leaders don't often do, and that is take responsibility for the sins of the past right and he did that because of uh, uh the sins of his father and Sean, and and having killed Margaret Strong, like the monster they pretty much created, and then you get just into the uh which is probably like the best part of the film, the way women are the way black women are represented. Yeah. You got uh, Okoye who is the Nagyar's character, the general of the Dormalage, you got uh, uh Nakia the spy who is Lapita Nyong'o's character, and then you have Shuri the, yeah. the, the the technological sister who is uh played by uh, uh Letitia Wright. Like they are just some of the best images of women, of black women that I've seen on screen, especially in these superhero films.
1: Yeah, man, I agree with you on that one. Like, they, they, and they were empowered, not, uh, like these damsel in distress roles. They were very strong and, uh, the, the whole cast, everything about the film, it was super dope. Even though the royal family of Wakanda, they dirty as hell, they cheated, okay, Eric Killmacher is still The rightful king of Wakanda. You know what? That's for another time. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining me, man. This week, we had a a longer-than-normal interview, so I appreciate you rocking with me. But it was really, really fun, man. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. And thanks for joining me this week on the Quarterly Report.
2: All right, man. I appreciate you having me, man.
1: All right, guys, man. We are three quarters down, and we're going to finish up strong with our fourth topic this week. Fourth quarter. Certain sports. Um... They share a distinct culture, if you will, with their fan bases, meaning um, some sports have a special bond with their fan, their core fans um, that is unique to that sport. Doesn't necessarily mean that only this sport has these certain characteristics that uh, unites them with their their fan base, their core fan base. But there are several sports that kind of just. They separate themselves from the pack with these unique ties to the people who love the sport the most. And I'll give you some examples, um, golf. I'm not, uh, I, I don't watch golf, right? But the fans of golf, they they share in this kind of camaraderie with the, 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 the professionals on the tour because they, they've actually, in many cases, played the same courses now obviously the 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 par they change the handicap for each of the uh the courses or whatever but like i know people who've played congressional so when you are watching these these professionals on tour and they make their way to congressional country club you know there's a certain type of a bond there they're like oh man you know this this fairway is really hard to hit on 13 on congressional. I remember when I was there, you know what I mean? Like there's a, a, a type of, I don't want to say inclusion, but there's like kind of this fraternity, if you will, community of shared experience by playing on these courses. Like you get to play on the course that the professionals play on. And yeah, they they make changes and, and add certain tweaks, especially when it's a part of a major, but you know, saying that you played on Congressional or if you are lucky enough to be a member at Augusta, right, is a lot different than saying, hey, man, you know, I, I got to play on, on at MSG the other day. And look, I would have loved to sometime in my life play any type of game, even if it's 21, on MSG. But it's still different. Like, I would have relished that moment, and I'm sure most basketball fans would. But it's not like if I'm watching the Knicks be like, oh, man, I was there. Because the, a court is a court, man. It's 10 feet. The dimensions are the same. Three-point line, free throw line, they're the same. The hoop is 10 feet in the air, right? Whereas if you're golfing, each course is different. So there is a bond with golf fans. Baseball, y'all know, If you listen to this show for any uh, significant amount of time, you know that I'm not the biggest baseball fan. I'm not a baseball fan at all. But I do love, I like, I am... I'm beyond appreciative. I am beyond amazed and jealous even of the culture of baseball as it pertains to the knowledge of their fans. You know what I mean? And I'm not even talking about the analytic movement and baseball's advanced statistics. Their whole the whole the the way their whole culture is regarding stats. is far beyond every other sport. It's not even close, but I'm not even talking about that. Right. Fans in baseball, they know. I mean, if you watch a baseball game with someone who loves the sport and, a, and a, an opposing batter comes up and they're talking about shifts that the the defense should make like they they know this It's like memorized. And then that doesn't even begin to talk about, like, knowing and understanding their prospects. So the, the minor league system in baseball is crazy. And come trade deadline time, they're talking about which prospects should be untouchable, what this guy is doing, how he'll fill the lineup. It's, it's amazing. Right. And then when you then add the analytical development, the analytical kind of culture that baseball has and how in, in other sports, in particularly basketball, when you start talking about advanced stats, in many cases you get dismissed. Whereas in baseball, Anyone like the skippers who try to dismiss the stats, they're getting they're getting waned out of the league. They're becoming dinosaurs. You understand? And that to me is amazing. And I appreciate I love that about a sport that I don't even like. Right. But that's part of the culture of baseball. I'm a huge NBA fan. And one of the things I feel strongly about and one of the things I'm proudest of when it comes to the NBA is how progressive and when i say progressive i don't mean from the political sense i'm not talking about politics i'm talking about visionary like forward thinking uh changing adapting right the nba is leaps ahead of every other sport when it comes to that the forward thinking of basketball i'll give you an example man I remember when Becky Hammond was announced to be the Spurs be a Spurs assistant head coach. And she was the first woman in a professional in the big four, I believe, to have a assistant role with the professional team. And, you know, that's a that's a that's a monumental accomplishment, man. That's like breaking barriers. That's huge. But I remember my friends and like all of my friends, all of my loved ones, essentially. Like we talk about different things, but one thread that unites all of us is the NBA. Like the NBA is absolutely a significant a significant fabric of my life. I love basketball, the NBA specifically. So I remember when Becky Hammond was announced as a Spurs assistant head coach, and it was huge. But after a while, like I felt like people outside of the NBA made that like a bigger story than the fans of the NBA. And I mean that. When I say a biggest story, that accomplishment is huge, but it's, it's huge because of how poorly we treat our women, right? And how awful history is, but based on merit, Becky Hammond absolutely deserved to get that job. So the idea of it being huge is huge because it's an accomplishment. It's a first, but that's because of how poor our history is. But when it's based on merit, that's not a big story. And I was proud. That when the Becky Hammond news came out, right, it was like, okay, yeah, it's about time. And then basketball fans, NBA fans moved on because in our world, in our vision, right, in this progressive society of culture of fandom, right, we felt she's deserved it. It's been time. Okay, she deserved it. Let's let's move on. Like, it wasn't a big it wasn't this big kind of jarring news story that a woman could possibly be coaching men because she, she's absolutely capable of doing it. And you're seeing it all the time now. Compare like the women who call basketball games, not just sideline reports, but like color commentating and play by play. I'm, I'm, obviously it's different because there are more basketball games than NFL games per se, but I'm assuming that the NBA has far more women Calling games, not just sideline reporting, but actually calling games than the other leagues, right? And obviously the NBA, they were the first league to have women officials. And this is something when Jason Collins came out, you know, Michael Sam, he came out in the NFL and that was like that dominated almost an entire offseason. Jason Collins came out and it was like, yeah, cool. And because he was it, it felt to me and I live in a bubble. You know, I'm a, I'm an, a, pro, I'm a progressive guy. I, I surround myself with progressive thinking people, that type of stuff. I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, th- to me, that's, that's not a big deal. And I was proud that my friends in the NBA community at large was like, yeah, we're glad that Jason Collins is, that's cool because he represents society, right? It's silly to think that the NBA, like professional sports is somehow an anomaly that they don't have homosexuals and in the basketball but there's homosexual like they are gay people in every facet of life. And the fact that we the the NBA community embraced him and made him feel comfortable, right? Whereas other leagues probably and look, by no means am I saying the NBA is perfect in that regard cuz there's nobody coming out currently. You know what I'm saying? But it it felt good that there wasn't this kind of backlash that other leagues have or definitely would kind of have so like in my opinion being an nba fan being a part of the nba culture is to surround yourself with people who socially right are accepting and forward thinking so you can imagine how blown frustrated and just awful i and the entire nba community felt when this dallas mavericks Uh, sexual misconduct this culture of sexual deviance was um i guess reported on first by sports illustrated and other outlets have picked up on it since then and that was a shot to the core because again one of the things i mean i love the game of basketball you know period point blank i love the game of the nba professional basketball but i also enjoy the fact that it's a community of how i feel and again I'm in a bubble. I get it. Every NBA fan, every NBA player, and exec clearly doesn't feel like this. But we've had such um, progress when it comes to uh, women and minorities. I mean, you know, you got a Philip. One of the best head coaches in the NBA is a Philip. Is Filipino. Richard Cho just he his contract wasn't extended, but he's an amazing general manager. I mean, he made Charlotte before this last run, really. He turned Portland around and he made Charlotte a playoff team. Messiah Ujiri, I've talked to him I've talked about him in the past. He's one of the best general managers in the league. So you're like there and those are just the names off the top of my head. There are plenty of other examples of, you know, great candidates and coaches and officials and players. I mean, Greg Popovich, maybe the greatest professional basketball coach of all time, speaks regularly about equality. (laughs) You know what I mean? Can you imagine Bill Belichick or, you know, Tony Lurie, he's not a manager anymore, but, you know, uh, 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 a prominent baseball skipper or a hockey coach doing what Popovich does regularly? Steve Kerr? And again, they don't talk about politics. They're not talking about how to balance the budget. They're not talking about whether we should fund charter schools or or not popovich is a a vet You, you don't hear him talk about how to better deploy the military they're talking about social issues man but here we are the nba the nba who likes to consider themselves this league full of progressive minds and thinkers in dallas one of the biggest markets in the nation right a diverse city and diverse cities usually mean right Progressive thinkers. Mark Cuban, right? Again, when I say progressive, I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about Mark Cuban's politics or your politics uh, who, who are listening to my voice right now. But just the idea of thinking and changing and questioning, you know, how things are and why they are and rules and kind of this limitless imagination when I think of progressive, right? Change the culture if the culture is wrong. Mark Cuban, who likes to Always find the camera and puts himself out there to be like, this is how we do it. And we do things the right way and the Dallas Maverick way and mass fan for life the whole nine. And this is going on. You understand what I'm saying? Like. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine. I can't imagine. How this happened. Unfortunately, right. Because it's 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 scary. You read the Sports Illustrated article, and again, I'm not going to read it to you. I, I, if you haven't heard it by now, I really, I really uh, suggest you take a look at it because they're talking about uh, there. Were, what was the guy's name? Term term terdema. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce his name. But Terdema Usuri was a high-profile uh, member of the organization. And there are countless number of women who would say he would make just, I mean, inappropriate doesn't even begin to describe some of the comments and actions that this guy would say to the women, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like disgusting stuff, you know what I'm saying? And it wasn't just him, the head of the Mavericks online site, right? Earl Sneed, He was accused of sexual assault. I believe he had to sign a waiver that he couldn't be in the room with women as an employee of the Mavericks. Like if you if you even offer up some type of contract like that, you know you were wrong. You know you were in the wrong. You feel me? You like you wouldn't do that if the guy was whatever the case may be. You know what I'm saying? The fact that you have to even write up some type of contract like that speaks to you knowing that you're in the wrong here. But what happened, right? Dallas gets out it. Mark Cuban says he didn't understand. He didn't know all this was happening. That fi- I find that very hard to believe considering how much of a, uh, I don't want to say micromanager, but it seems like he has his DNA all over that organization. So I can't, especially their, their, their website. I, I find it very hard to believe he doesn't know the, 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 the heads, right? And these aren't just regular staffers interns or whatever these are like prominent figures in this man's organization okay but what happens and this is the thing that annoys me man when when anything goes wrong and as men you know i'm talking to us right now when we do something wrong and we get caught out there what's the first thing we do right we try to get a woman to help clean it clean it up for us right you know what i'm saying and that's what the mavericks did they hired cynthia marshall to take over as the CEO of the Mavericks, his sister. You know what I'm saying? And she, man, she had her press conference the other day. You could tell she is Mrs. Don't Play. That's the vibe that I got off from her. Like, okay, they, 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 they like, they're not playing around anymore. But it shouldn't have to be after an awful situation. Now, okay, now let's get a woman. Or like, now let's get a minority to clean it up. Nah, Joe, like we should be, Again, if we want to act like we're this forward-thinking community, man, we gotta start demanding better. And this isn't the first time this has happened. Right? Remember, it's a, it's a joke thinking about it now. But Derek Fisher and Billy Hunter once ran the NBA Players Association. And as you would expect, they ran it to the ground. Guy, I mean, look at look at this look at what has happened in the NBA since Michelle Roberts took over as Uh, union executive, right? There's essentially no more three games and four nights anymore. They've they've cut that down in like two plus years to where there's like almost none of that. The all-star break is extended for the players. There's four days off after the game on Sunday. You know what I mean? Contracts have through the roof. The league wanted to smooth out the cap. The NBA was like, nah, bro, we're not doing that. And they didn't get it. They're like... And players have more power than they could have ever imagined, ever. And there was just uh, an extension of the CBA, what was it, like a year, a year and a half ago? Made no waves, there was no no big fight, there was no lockout, there was no boisterous fights or threats. They came to the table, they agreed, and we've got labor peace for the you know, foreseeable future in the NBA. Now, part of that is because Adam Silvers doesn't strike me to be as much of a dick as David Stern, but Michelle Roberts deserves credit for that. Cleaning up Derek Fisher and Billy Hunter's mess. The way Cynthia Marshall has to clean up the mess left by Dallas, left in Dallas. And, and, and if we're going to, to appreciate and love and, you know, kind of brag about our inclusion and how include like how we treat others, right? As an NBA fan base. We got to start demanding stuff like this and that. This should never happen. And if you think that it only happened in Dallas, I put, man, maybe I'm a pessimist, but I think that you're naive. I think unfortunately this type of stuff happens far too often. I'm I'm going a little bit long, but I'm going to pull the curtain a little back. I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit. Easy for me to say, right? So this past December... You know, it was my birthday. I took some time off, man. I'm on vacation. I'm chilling with my people. And I'm thinking to myself, man, how can I improve the show? You know what I'm saying? Um, It still hasn't been a year, actually, since I've been doing this podcast. But I started April of 2017. So at the end of 2017, I felt like it was a good time to kind of reset and think about how I can improve the show. And hopefully, you know, the beginning of 2018, you guys, have enjoyed what I've done. But the biggest thing I wanted to do was, you know, become, I wanted to have more of a diverse guest list. You know what I mean? Like the people you hear, the vast majority of them, there've been maybe a small handful, few, a handful uh, of people who I didn't know who just out of the, the respect and love decided to be a guest on the show. But the vast majority of the people who I interview each week are people that I've met uh, as a producer doing sports. And I'm looking back and I'm like, man, you know, there are not that many women guests that I have on. And that bothered me because part of the reason I wanted to do the show is because I felt like the voices is like mine, right? People who love the NBA, love the NBA, people who love boxing, people who like to talk about television shows that aren't Seinfeld, like people who love the wire, you feel me? And who love hip hop and all these other things, you know, Game of Thrones, like there wasn't a voice for us. And that's one of the, that's the main reason why I started to do the show. But in that I can't act like, you know, I want to give a a voice, you know what I mean? And I want to have this diverse audience if my guests aren't diverse. And I'm like, okay, I have to do a better job of getting women on the show. But I'm starting to think like the women that I know, Or the people that I know who I worked with in sports, there weren't that many women. You know what I'm saying? And that ties in and all this stuff, diversity. You know, we made fun of the governor of Illinois in halftime, but all this stuff ties in and plays into one another, right? Because you got to ask why there are not that many women at this huge television station that I was working at. Why there weren't that many women? You know, why were there only two women anchors? Why was there no women producers or editors at this place? You know what I'm saying? And and the women who I have on the show, man, y'all know, I, I feel like Monica's one of my best guests. Keely Devon, she's one of the best guests, and she'll be on soon, um, fingers crossed, in the upcoming uh, weeks. But, that we, and then when you hear what's going on in Dallas, like, okay, well, maybe there's a reason why. Because the culture is not safe for them. You know what I'm saying? Because we breed this kind of silly and dangerous environment and then are so quick to dismiss even in the articles it's like they call it a frat house uh culture and you know animal house and all this other stuff and nah that's making it light that's whitewashing what's really going on is an awful culture like like, just because you have a fraternity doesn't mean you're doing this and treating we gotta hold ourselves to a higher standard man like, this shouldn't be acceptable at all. Mark Cuban got fined $600,000 for talking about tanking. He needs what, like, okay, and if that's, and if, that, if you feel that it, that complaining and talking about tanking is worth $600,000, then the hammer has to be significantly harder and harsher for this. Because even if he didn't know, ignorance is never an excuse especially for stuff like this and we as the fans as the culture of the nba who are proud to be a part of this fan base we have to demand more because it's not cool man and the moment we stop accepting this i guarantee you it'll stop we speak with our actions and our dollars and our viewing habits. They'll pay attention because they always do. Because whether or not they want to be, they want to have a diverse uh, employment and a fair and a safe working environment because they're just good people or because they have to check off a box. Regardless, there's one thing that they, we all know, all of these men in power, one thing that they always listen to is that bottom line, bro, without question. All right, guys. I went a little long on that fourth quarter, man, but I, I really wanted to touch on that, man, because that we we got to do better. Like that's, that. This can't be acceptable. It can't be. And again, I don't think that Dallas is the only place in sport that this is going on. Maybe I'm being a pessimist, but unfortunately, I don't think so. Maybe not to that degree. Let's hope not. But let's 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 demand better. All right, guys. Make sure. You get in contact with me in the show. Let me know your thoughts on the Dallas Mavericks situation, whether it's tanking or their culture or anything NBA or boxing related. You can tweet at me in the show at quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E show. You can email us at quarterlyreport at gmail.com. And you can listen, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, search quarterly report that's q-u-a-r-t-e-r-l-e-e you'll see the icon with my face on it click on it subscribe and please while you're at it leave and review the show leave and review the show and give us some five stars if you desire thank you guys so much for checking in with the podcast again this is episode 46 episode 50 is right around the corner that is crazy i'm super excited about that Remember, I will be live tweeting the Luis Ortiz, Deontay Wilder fight this Saturday. So make sure you check out the uh, the Twitter handle at Quarterly Report and follow me for Quarterly Show, excuse me, at Quarterly Show on Twitter. And make sure you follow my thoughts as the much anticipated heavyweight showdown goes down this Saturday night. And I will see you guys next week right back here on the Quarterly Report.